Now, come on, folks. I know you know that word. Let's try that again. In, 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 we're, we're kind of doing practice today, aren't we? <laughs> I do enjoy seeing you on Sunday mornings. You're pretty special. Samuel, the great prophet who guided Israel, had grown old. The people of Israel came to him and told him they wanted to be governed by a king like other nations in their region of the world. And although Samuel reminded them that God is their king and warned them of the consequences of having a king over them, they continued to demand a monarchy. So God gave them a king, Saul, and things were never the same again. In some respects, what prompted this transition was Samuel's vulnerability in his advanced age. But Israel was also concerned about the threat of a Philistine invasion. Since Moses handed the law on Sinai, Israel's strength and protection had been in prophets, prayers, and covenants. But now, they weren't sure that offered quite enough security. They wanted to be like other nations that had armies and chariots and kings for protection. Now that seems like a reasonable thing to ask, doesn't it? Maybe it seems so reasonable to us because we've lived so long with monarchical type arrangements, relying on the government, the military, and the constitution to protect us. It's difficult for us 21st century Americans to imagine what it was like for the tribes of Israel to trust in the Lord for everything. Such radical dependence and obedience is hard for us to comprehend. But it may be that since that day, we've never really known anything but a form of slavery to kings and governments and our willingness to accept such dependence so that we can be like everybody else and compete with everybody else, it may have interfered with our ability to trust in God in spite of what our currency says. The story certainly does provoke tension in us. Which God is the real object of my worship? The people of God were not intended to be just like other people. Rather, Israel was to order its life in the odd and demanding ways of Torah and to rely on the unfathomable love and remarkable promises of God, the sovereign of the universe, and their particular sovereign. So today's text tells us about a time when God's holy people decided that what was to set them apart from others would no longer be their radical and faithful obedience to the ways God had called them to walk in. But instead, how much better they would be at being just like everybody else. The might of their armies, the strength of their weapons, and the prowess of their kings. They would get themselves a king and an army and show the world who was boss. Well, fast forward a few hundred years, their plan, having failed numerous times, 
The Jews were living under the occupation of Rome and its emperor. They were still looking for a king when Jesus appeared. To many, he looked like the man for the job. To his family, he looked like he'd lost his mind. To the religious and political establishments, he looked like a threat. But Jesus came to proclaim the inbreaking of a realm over which God reigned in the hearts and minds of those who truly worship God. They would be a people set apart by this distinction wherever they may be and under whatever secular government they lived. He said those who believed in him and trusted in his message to be true would bring the influence of God wherever they went. They would be to the world what salt is to food, what light is to darkness, and what leaven is to a loaf of bread. They would not place their ultimate trust in earthly rulers, in chariots and horses and might, but in the power of the God of love, mercy, and justice. They would not be like everybody else. Christians are different, and our ways are not the ways of the culture in which we live. Isn't that right? Isn't that what being friends of Jesus requires of us? Isn't it our vocation to be more of an influence on the world than the world is upon us? I heard about a man who visited the Soviet Union before its collapse. He thought that as a Christian, his life stood in sharp contrast to the atheists he encountered there. During his visit, he made friends with a woman who had been a communist and an atheist all her life, just as he had been an American and a Baptist all of his life. One day in a conversation, she asked him, you're a Christian, right? Yes, the man replied, I am a Christian. The woman continued her inquiry, so how have you lived today differently from me because you're a Christian? Did you ask God what he wanted you to do when you got out of bed this morning? Did you spend your money differently because you believe that God is real? It was a difficult, embarrassing, and epiphanous moment for that man. And in reflecting on that experience, he later said, there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between me and the way I lived my life, the things I was willing to live and die for, and the life of that atheist. In a very real sense, you see, the man was an atheist too, a practical atheist. Oh, he believed in God. God just didn't have anything to do with his life. He placed his trust and sought direction for his life in the same places everybody else does. Government, financial security, military protection, and might. He embraced an ideology that puffed him up with pride and self-righteousness when he looked at people with a different ideology, but he flunked the course in Christian theology. I missed an appointment last week, and it really bothered me. I have all these gadgets to keep track of time, and I missed an appointment. 
Was I as bothered when I failed to show up for my daily appointment with God at morning or evening prayer? I lost some money in my retirement account when the market dropped and it worried me. If I lost my faith, would, it, would I have been that concerned? I'd rather not have to explore the answers to those questions. You and I are not called to be like everybody else. We're not called to be better than everybody else either. We're called to place our greatest trust and our highest loyalty in God. Doing that will sometimes make us different from everybody else. One of the ways we're different is that we're called to come here every week and listen to the ancient word, which sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable and sometimes makes us feel better about ourselves and our world. We're called to behave toward one another and to handle our differences in a way that is different from the gossipy, polarizing, divisive ways of others around us. So that when people see how our community functions, they will say, wouldn't it be wonderful if every community and every group of people and every family could get along like they do? See how they love one another? I'll lay that vision before you this morning. We're also called to gather around this table to participate in a covenant meal with God and with one another and with those who've gone before us to remember who we are and whose we are, to be reformed, renewed, and reminded of what differentiates us before we go back out into the world with everybody else. We're just not supposed to be like everybody else. Now, I realize that there are ways Christians are sometimes seen as different in a not particularly flattering or helpful way. For example, I was embarrassed for Christians everywhere when I stopped at an intersection here in Jackson on Friday. And the car in front of me had a bumper sticker that said, to hell with our enemies, God bless America. Now while I acknowledge that the man is at liberty in this country to express his particular different from mine convictions, I have to admit I thought about setting up a sign that says, if you come to our church, we'll talk to you about the Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I sort of think that bumper sticker took God's name in vain. I have to wonder sometimes if we're reluctant to embrace our distinctly Christian identity and way of life because we don't want to be mistaken for extremists. Episcopalians are very good at that. <laughs> That's surely something to be careful about, but not a valid reason to pursue a course of being just like everybody else. It's something we're called to struggle with every day we draw breath. And I appeal to you, therefore, to keep up the struggle and don't lose heart. Because in the words of Paul, we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. 
For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Amen.